0: I'm Polly Barton, and this is episode four of the Coraldo Editions podcast, and I am here with the wonderful Rachel Allen.
1: Polly Barton is a writer and Japanese translator. Her translations include Where the Wild Ladies Are by Aoko Matsuda, So We Look to the Sky by Misumi Kubo, and There's No Such Thing as an Easy Job by Kikuko Samura. Her most recent translation. Is Mild Vertigo, Porn and Oral History is her most recent book published in 2023 by FitzCraldo Editions. Hi, Polly.
0: Hi, Rachel.
1: It's really great to be here chatting with you about your work today. And I was going to start by asking you about your two pronged career, um, although that's not to limit any future or present careers you might be developing thinking about your translation practice and your sort of original writing, although you might have another way of terming this. Um, And whether I could ask you for a kind of origin story about your work as a translator from Japanese, but obviously this feels wrong for a few reasons. The main being that your entire practice feels so slippery, conceptual, so much full of refusal and a kind of active learning, which I want to talk about later. To be able to sort of separate or demarcate in any particular way. And I'm also deeply wary of being the man at the professionalish party, aggressively asking you, why Japan? (laughs) Um, And actually, in that section of um, 50 Sounds, you talk a little about what brought you all this way in your professional life, which you term darkness and feelings which I loved so much and recognised from my own defence of my art form as a poet. Darkness and feelings is obviously why I write poetry. So I thought maybe I could ask about um, the fact that 50 Sounds, in amongst all of the other extraordinary things that it is and that it does, is memoir. And it feels so incredible to me that your first book about the thing you do is about the thing that you do. (laughs) It's so funny and gorgeously self-reflexive and it is a really funny book. So maybe my first question is, I wonder if you could talk to me about Fifty Sounds, its shape, your relationship to it and your approach, especially as it's now been published for nearly two
0: years. Yeah, thank you so much for all of that. Um, There's so much that I want to pick up on there. Um, But yeah, Fifty Sounds. Um, You know, I throughout my 20s wrote a lot of very bad fiction um and it sort of felt like a, a, something I needed to expunge from my body I guess that was a <laughs> the, the the primary um way that I was expunging the darkness and the feelings and 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 I would write it and sort of know immediately that it wasn't what I wanted to say. And it didn't really feel or sound like me. Um, and at some point, I I sort of came to the end of the road with that and, and really kind of accepted that this wasn't going to happen for me. And I was going to be a translator and I... You know, I was by that point I was working on stuff in my translation career that I loved so much that it it didn't seem to me like a secondary thing or a way into writing. It really did start to feel like okay, I am expressing my voice through other people's voices. You know, translation is is full enough for me, and you know, <laughs> I guess ironically or whatever enough it was kind of at the moment that i or shortly after i threw away all of those ambitions to become a writer that i started writing about what i really wanted to write about um and you know at the at the start it was just it, it 50 cents really came out of making notes about um about language really about elements of Japanese and my time in Japan I just moved back to the UK at that point and I was kind of struggling to adjust um and 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 actually really struggling to sort of speak English and act you know I I think I live in Bristol I I'd moved to Bristol um, and everyone's quite friendly in Bristol and people would, you know, be having conversations with me. And I um, found myself weirdly, like, <laughs> incapable of understanding what they were saying or, like, responding in time. I just felt myself to be such an awkward thing um, and presence. And so I was making notes around that um, and, and thinking back to Japan um and i just had this really strong sense like wait this is actually me writing in a way that feels like it is me um and and i guess 50 sounds were sort of born out of that it was in writing the application to for the um essay prize that i kind of really formulated what the structure should be and that constraint. Um, And looking back now, I think that constraint was amazing for me to have um, and and served me so well in so many ways, as much as I... (laughs) cursed it a thousand times along the way you know like oh I've only got 49 or like oh today I've got 53 what am I gonna do um getting 50 and getting them sort of to to fit in a you know the the, the proper order was, was really hard um but I think there was something about having that structure which meant I could try out lots of different things and pick up something and put it down again and 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 without necessarily feeling like i had to find an answer i'm sort of i'm writing a bit again now and something that i'm find remembering about myself is like this maybe in part it comes from like doing a undergrad degree in philosophy and the sort of training there but like it just feels like i have to find everything has to be so neatly put together and the argument just really really tight and i think having that the 50 you know 50 essays forming one large essay format for me was just incredibly helpful in in learning to sort of give some of that up
1: yeah it's really i think the your formal approach to your writing is so innovative and so playful and ludic and I'm interested in the kind of the necessity of maybe landing on a formal structure first to allow you to or perhaps the necessity of the formal structure governs the direction that the te- the shape of the text will take mm which is not something I feel um, like I've been able to manage that well as a writer. I struggle with structure, especially such um, brilliantly wrought conceptual shapes that um, you bring about in what you do. And because there are sections of the book that are moving and explicit and brave and raw and hard to read, and I wonder if finding that shape perhaps allowed that kind of more um, personal freedom I suppose to sort of write not only a kind of intellectual and professional life but personal romantic erotic familial life
0: yeah I think thank you for that I think it absolutely did I think again it comes back to this thing of like being able to sort of just plunge straight into some really difficult feeling or really an experience that's sort of very embarrassing or difficult to narrate and just be there in its full intensity for a very short period of time and then come out and move straight on and not feel like I have to kind of talk the reader through or talk myself through how that fits in with the rest of me and how I can say this sort of you know incredibly embarrassing thing and then Speak relatively intelligently in the next section, I suppose.
1: It is extraordinary how sometimes a text demands a structure. And as you were talking, I was thinking about an Erno quote from A Man's Place, where she talks about um, writing. I suppose in the in the fictive manner that she writes, and she says, "I realise now that a novel is out of the question in order to tell the story of a life governed by necessity." I have no right to adopt an artistic approach or attempt to do something moving or gripping. And then she talks about collating her father's words um, with no lyrical reminiscences, no triumphant displays of irony. And I love these statements of intent that I feel like are also woven through 50 sounds, which, of course, is so much more or not more than memoir, but it's so expansive within the mode of memoir. And you mentioned briefly then your training as a philosopher, your undergraduate degree in philosophy, which is outlined and detailed in the book um, in a way that feels so um, open and generous. And you give so much space to the autodidact and the flailing learner, which I think I want to go back to because I feel like that's a really important mode for you. I think that could be the mode in which you... Um, sort of feel most at home or perhaps that generates most for you Um, but first of all Wittgenstein (laughs) is written down here Um, (laughs) and I was sort of mapping Wittgenstein against your work and you say in 50 Sounds that he's the philosopher with whom you credit having shaped your way of conceptualizing language and then you bring in this incredible beautiful toolbox analogy of how we can take language apart and put it back together um there's so many networks that you pull together as well that incredible place where you have the recognition of um the rough ground between the study of Wittgenstein and Japanese Wittgenstein what does he mean to you
0: (laughs) (laughs) What doesn't he mean to me?
1: <laughs> you also, look, there's an amazing part where you just talk about looking at a picture of him and his eyes sort of, and that, and that was a really beautiful kind of like, sometimes we're drawn to things symbolically and visually and we don't really know why we are and then they are, then they become more important to us as time goes on.
0: Yeah. Do you ever get this thing when you're working on something and you're reading sort of, you know, you're researching it and reading sort of secondary material and then you find, stumble upon a book that you are just so into that you sort of convince yourself or can convince yourself that you don't actually need to write this book that you were going to write, which is about something totally different because the, you know there's this book that contains the world. And I think when I was working on 50 Sounds, that was um, the Ray Monk biography of Wittgenstein, um, which has a, a lovely little insert of lots of pictures of him which I used to stare at um and brings together I think in an incredibly fertile way um and and sort of thought-inspiring way his life and his philosophy um one of the challenges of 50 sounds was working out how to get Wittgenstein in there because he felt so integral to how I kind of well really to how my 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 mind and my thinking has been shaped I think but also particularly so integral to this story and my understanding of language um but, you know, here is a book that is ostensibly about Japanese. That is the main sort of through line. And so getting getting that bit right without it feeling too much of a digression um, was one of the sort of major challenges, I would say. And I wrote a lot of stuff about him and him as a man that actually didn't end up going in I mean in part because I was quoting so heavily from Ray Monk that at some point it was like no just I'll just put that in the biography and you know people can go read it bibliography I mean Um, but I I loved what you just said about the flailing learner and I think something that one of the many things that I am so drawn to with Wittgenstein, um, and which I think you can really see in his work, even before you start sort of investigating his, his life, is is the way that that flailing is very much on the surface, not concealed, Um you know, he he wrote very few... I mean, he, he the only book of philosophy that he published during his life was the Tractatus, um, the philosophical investigations. He was sort of working towards publishing but didn't publish while he was alive. But, you know, most of the stuff that we have from him is just notes, his notes, or notes that other people have made from his lectures. And, and, and it's really it's very much him thinking aloud and and the process of thought and the process of you know sort of embracing the 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 wrong turns that you have to take or that that our our, our language our, our grammar as he would say like pushes you down and and that actually sort of seeing and understanding those mistakes um, and misconceptions is an indispensable part of seeing things as they actually are. Um, and, yeah, that that's something that I, I really relate to in his thought, I think. Um, also, I mean, again, I talk a bit about this in, in 50 Sounds, but probably not as much as I wanted to. Uh, the, um, you know, the very fact that he essentially has two different and in many ways kind of opposing schools of thought within his his work. So you know, the the, the tractatus Wittgenstein is very different from the later Wittgenstein, and in the later Wittgenstein, you know, in the, in the in the investigations, he holds himself up as an example of the kind of traps that people fall into in their thinking. Um, and, you know, it doesn't hide that. It and, and there's a sort of a real humility there, but like humility in the service of us all understanding better, I guess. Which feels so, I don't know, radical or something
1: now and reading the book I was struck by how masterful it is but that that mastery came from a place of um sort of a not a series or a sequence of mistakes but a a kind of allowance of what it means to get things wrong so we can learn in the room where we're feeling out and, and we're learning and I do I will talk about that active learner, active learning mode in a second, because I think it's a nice bridge also to pawn, which is your um second book. Um but just to sort of stay with Wittgenstein-ish mm. <laughs> in the and please correct my pronunciation, Giro giro section. giro, Giro Giro. giro. Mm. You're talking about the sound of eyes riveting deep into holes in your self-belief. Mm. And <clears throat> I thought of a line by one of my favourite poets, Maymay um, who loves Wittgenstein and loves Remarks on Colour. And he is a poet's philosopher. Um, and... The, this line was brought to my attention by Will Harris in an amazing essay on May May And the line is, you look into someone's eyes as if you were seeing through the face. And I was able to just pull together all of this thinking that I am interested in, in regards to perspective and um, uh, attention and, and how we manoeuvre our own perspectives And then perhaps negotiate that into narrative. And I'm interested in that in a kind of eco-critical way. Um, But I feel like there's so much in your work. And when I say your work, I mean it encompasses all of the things that you do. um, That think about perspective and attention. And it makes me think about how political 50 Sounds is actually. Because you are... um, gently suggest suggesting to the reader that we upend our linguistic formats so that we may better understand other ways of being materially in the world and there's so much about the material and societal and cultural repercussions of a language state that I found so close to writing poetry actually and um yeah, I think, I, I was just interested in it was of attention and perspective shifts, perception and attention in your work in 50 Sounds and in porn as well, if you'd like, even though we've not sort of begun talking about that and your work as a translator.
0: I love that line so much. Um, <laughs> I keep thinking about it. Uh, yeah, attention, I think, is a really key word for me, key concept. Um, You know, it gets sort of bandied about that we live in an attention economy. Um, And I think we're very used to sort of saying that, but I think we also precisely... Because we are probably totally submerged in in that and 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 not really sort of understanding what that means, I think there can be a tendency to forget that really attention is pretty much the most generous thing that you can give to anyone or anything um and and I suppose for me attention means you know a bit a, a bit like listening it, it's sort of it has to be the right kind of attention you know a- attention in the sense of really really opening yourself up and being not necessarily totally vacant of ideas or preconceptions because I don't really think that's possible but certainly sort of having the willingness or having the space within yourself to have those changed. Um, You know, I really appreciate what you said about 50 Sounds being a sort of a political book, bringing the intention to change the way that we are conceptualising language a lot of the time. But I don't think that that was necessarily something that I went into that project with. It really was about (sighs) giving myself the time and the space and, you know, I should say really being given by the world and by Fitzgeraldo the time and the space to really listen to what that project wanted and sort of carry it through to its its end. Um, And I think that capacity is really something that has been very much developed in me through translation. Um, You know, you said at the beginning that you are sort of tend to be a bit wary of constraint in your own writing or long for the 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 freedom and I think I very much started off like that and then worked with you know I mean translation is in a sense one sense one way of seeing it is like a very 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 constrained form of writing um, but it is one where you are absolutely It's all about listening. It's all about listening to that voice and and gradually in stages carrying it to the place that it it feels like, I want to use the word logically, but it's not necessarily logically, emotionally, whatever needs to go. Um, And I think that takes, you know, that, that requires a lot of different conditions and, and one of them is slowness, I guess.
1: The listening aspect I find uh so sort of hopeful and I think when I'm reading your work I see this sense or I sense how generous and empathetic I think your your books are to people and all their weirdnesses and deviances and strangenesses and mistakes and it feels like a, a really empathetic reading experience like a generous reading experience um, which in itself is kind of gripping because that kind of space that you make um, I find it in in some poets and I think it's so innovative because it comes from the formal constraints that you that we've talked about that that 50 sounds is is within but it does feel like a very organic and innate ability to just um offer kindness as a kind of model as well and and space making as a kind of model and you mentioned having the space to be changed that's such a massive political thing to say I suppose now and forever Mm. and to sort of position your books in that way and the translation in that way just feels so hopeful for me and just filled me with joy as well when I was reading both of the books and maybe we could sort of use that as a bridge Mm. to talk a little bit about um porn your second i'm saying like single authored uh work <laughs> <laughs> i don't know how you sort of define the difference between your translations and your single authored work but is that okay to say that for now absolutely yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and this is where i want to talk about this kind of active learner model because I am very enamored with the autodidact figure, it's a very um meaningful thing for me um coming from working class communities who uh have taught themselves so much and are high highly intellectual reading people and you have this autodidactic mode for both fifty sounds and porn. Um, which I appreciate and I think are places from which the books draw a lot of this empathy and space and ability to listen and in 50 sounds you talk about the deep immersion in 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 learning Japanese language when you're in Japan Um, and in porn you talk about not wanting to be an ignoramus with horrendous gaps in my knowledge Um, and another note is just this like beautiful conversational way that you talk to the reader like they're coming with you you're like let's learn together (laughs) and in 50 sounds you position this as and again correct me yochi yochi yeah totter and staggering a way forward towards mastery and you dedicate a chapter to this and you position porn as training um, in putting yourself and the people around you through the experience of conversing about things that are awkward, difficult, potentially excruciating. And it's just so honest. And I love how active the book becomes in this way. Like as I'm reading it, I'm like I'm moving through these states of learning with you and 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 it activates the reader. And um, you, early on in 50 Sounds, you talk about the concept of Duolingo, and this sort of very admirable, necessary desire to move away from this kind of like box ticking uh, way of learning, which, you know, is so institutionalised and um, this desire to get things wrong and to learn through that getting wrongness. And um, I also noticed in 50 Sounds, you say you can maybe pin the project down to the joy of unprompted discovery. And I suppose I wanted to talk to you about education, educating yourself yourself being in an institution how if whether you feel you have a sort of approach to teaching learning because 50 sounds is also about you teach in that book and the way you talk about the teacher-student relationship is so Mm. brilliant and funny and recognizable
0: that's such a great great question um and actually not one that i've really thought about before it's not a frame within which I've thought about my work before um or even that sort of the 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 way the learning
1: the the learning potentials of the book the fact that you are learning you're showing you're learning this kind of and and you are a teacher in it there's this like layer upon layer of kind of like knowledge exchange I suppose that feels integral to what you're doing and how you're doing it
0: you know it's so interesting I mean hearing everything that you have just said has is so interesting for me because I think a lot of that stuff is so much about just who I am and kind of my experience of the world that it's almost too deep for me to recognize without another person pointing it out in some way like you know i love spiky and mean fiction and i love people who have had incredibly you know incredible educations and and retained everything that they've been taught and have confidence in what they're saying and can tell you it and, you know, mingle it with their own sort of perspective. But I also recognise that those things are not me and will never be me. Um, I'm sort of continually mourning, I think, the fact that I... I struggle to be articulate um or to to articulate the kind of things that I feel I should be saying, to speak in the way that I feel like I should be speaking. Um, I stayed at my mum's house last night, um, and we had this conversation where about about gesturing because um, I'm a big gesturer and I was watching my mum and and she sort of narrates it's almost like she's speaking sign language like she narrates everything um, using using these sort of secondary gestures particularly anything relating to feelings and then my aunt does the same and we were sort of talking about this and and I feel in some really fundamental way that is kind of the place that I come from if that makes sense and 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 where a lot of my writing comes from is sort of <laughs> you can hear it now right like the 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 thing that's struggling to come out and be articulated but resists that um and and I suppose how that fits into education or and teaching or one way that it fits in with education and and teaching is is this sense of who who is allowed to have a place at the table um at the lectern um and and the kinds of the kinds of knowledge that are valued I'm just thinking of the I, I recently started reading the um, Ursula Le Guin collection of essays, Space Crone, and the first one in there where she talks about how if she could sort of send—I think the, the concept is send anyone to space as an example of like our wisest people. It would be an an old woman, um, and 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 the amount of knowledge that people like that have in ways that precisely resist any kind of easy articulation from the lectern you know um a more sort of embodied um form of knowledge uh I don't quite know where I'm going with this answer. (laughs) I totally see all of that. It's this, like,
1: I think this idea of alternative ways of learning, alternative knowledges, knowledges is knowledges, which in and of itself feels as though it's uh, prioritising some ways of knowing over, over others and in eco-critical studies and eco- ecological thinking there's so much debate about um, indigenous knowledges in regards to landscape and traditional ecological knowledges that have been overridden by patriarchal, masculine, reason-based approaches to the landscape and Ursula Kayla Le Guin is so brilliant on that kind of thinking so organically and so on innately it's in her writing and I think this idea of who's allowed a place at the lectern and I think this idea about articulation as something that you kind of have to be conditioned into because the concept of articulation itself is like a, a false premise it's like within this institution I am deemed articulate if I can inhabit the mode that's already been dominant for years anyway and you talk about your time at Cambridge and I think there's one point oh no maybe you say this in Tokyo oh no I think you are say in Cambridge I, I was a mess mm. <laughs> and I went to Goldsmiths um and I think it's like a different breed of like upper class presentation had a lot of like princesses pretending <laughs> not to be princesses um, you'd be chatting to someone and they'd like really look like, you know, they'd just be wearing joggers or whatever and then be like, oh yeah, I own a castle. I was like, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, this idea of just, uh, having, I suppose, to um, manage yourself into a, into an intellectual or what is like deemed a, an intellectual space, manage yourself appropriately into that room. I felt that so much in 50 Sounds, this kind of like, um continuous kind of like drawing in of the limbs of the flailing but that's why 50 sounds are so brilliant because that's your kind of flailing limb you're like here it is (laughs) (laughs) it cannot be repressed (laughs) but it was so uh permission giving actually Mm. i think in that way it was like go learn do it it's okay and you can be wrong and you don't have to be this way and, and I get it and it's impossible to have to align yourself I And mean, I think everybody has that experience I mean you know I didn't I think if I'd have even attempted to go to uh Oxford or Cambridge I, God knows where I'd be but that that kind of I mean I couldn't even imagine that amount of pressure and what you have to acquiesce to and then to still have such a love for what it means to learn or maybe even uh that y- your love for learning has been shaped by the fact that that was such a maybe barren atmosphere for you or not because you found wittgenstein but that that kind of model of learning didn't feel like appropriate for how you wanted to continue
0: yeah it's i mean i also encountered hidden hidden princesses <laughs> stealth <quite> well <laughs> my favorite um, phrase <laughs> I remember so vividly, like at Cambridge with the philosophy stuff, feeling very, very angry. Um, You know, that like I would occasionally go to the pub with other philosophers and they, you know, philosophers love talking about philosophy at the pub um, in a kind of... Look at this fascinating dilemma that I've come up with, or that my lecturer has come up with. Um, and and just talk about it as 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 a kind of, you know, intellectual puzzle. Um, and I think I felt furious because I felt like I actually really <laughs> really felt the problem of free will genuinely in quite a, a, a deep way um and possibly because of that feltness or possibly not because of that I couldn't do that intellectualizing at all um so it was this sort of twin contradictory sense of like I hate you for doing that, but I also hate the fact that I can't do that. Um and you know, and and I think I should say in in the name of of not being a sort of stealth wealth type person. Like I I was not, you know, I did well at school. Like I wasn't I I'm, I'm not I don't want to sort of present myself as like someone who really struggled academically because It it definitely wasn't that for me, but it just felt as though I couldn't walk the walk and I didn't want to walk the walk and I hated that that walk was the walk that you had. There was only one walk to walk, you know?
1: Yeah, there's a poet I love, American poet called Will Alexander, um, who is just the most bombastic thinker, so outside of any kind of academic or institutionalised funding application, box-ticking language. And it's like he's just some kind of cosmic other realm. He's just tapped into something that feels like so beyond not only the very dry, strip-lit, institutional or even like ivory tower room but just like beyond the material world. Like he's Mm -hmm. retained this kind of way of writing and thinking and making that just feels not even actively in opposition, but it's just always been within its own thinking space and language space. And he is obsessed with language and vocabulary. And he has mentioned in interviews that he only speaks English and that he sort of, um, I think that's something that, he would like to change um but he's obsessed with the english language and all of the things that it does and, the, and his vocabulary is so extensive i'll show you an interview with him later because it will be it's 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 a trip <laughs> he's amazing um but yeah that idea of f- fashioning ourselves within the institution and also just like uncovering different ways of learning and knowledge was so significant to me in the book so thank you for just yeah, m- giving that permission and making the space.
0: Thank you for saying that. I mean, and and I feel like that permission, sense of permission within me came from other books. You know, I mean, I think the first one really was Bluets by Maggie Nelson and just feeling like, oh my God, you can talk about anal sex and Wittgenstein on the same page. <laughs> um, and and you can be these different things, you know, you can step into the sort of the philosophy shoes, but you can do it in your own way. And then you can talk about stuff that has like hit you and wounded you in, 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 in a very deep way um, and, and link those things. Um, and, and yeah, I mean... It, it, it feels both incredibly tight and incredibly free. Um, and that was, yeah, really, really formative for me. Um, and then actually, this little art, which was the first Fitzgerald book I ever read. So the book was actually given to me by a friend of mine whose comment on giving it to me was wow like you've been translating all this time and I never knew that what you were doing was so interesting um (laughs) and you know I feel like in a sense I would have assumed that if you went into the minutiae of Translating Roland Barthes, you would lose most readers who were not pre-existing super fans of either you or Roland Barthes. Um, but actually, of course, it turns out that exactly the opposite is true. And if you are really into something, the more, the deeper you go, and the the harder you lean into those specifics, actually. The more universal it becomes, you know, and I think that was so permission giving for me in the sense of when at that point I, I was already sort of starting to formulate fifty sounds as an idea. And it was like, wow, I could actually really lean into the details of this tiny little word and how it's used and and sort of see the world that opens up from that um
1: that's language's, toolbox.
0: that's language's toolbox yeah um yeah I mean and, and obviously Wittgenstein is, is 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 the same right that it, it's sort of my initial fear was that it it slash he was really off-putting to people yeah
1: and it's trusting the reader which I think is um again such a uh it, you can you can tell when a writer is allowing the reader to explore come to their own conclusions and nothing's being hidden and no one's being patronized or spoken down to mm. which I find in Kate Briggs actually that's sort of uh, I, I wouldn't even say it's uncompromising it's just like I I know you will know I know you will be guided. Porn?
0: Yeah, I was just thinking, there's been so many times when I've been like, oh, and that relates to porn, and then just haven't said it. Um, (laughs) It's also, you know, I feel very happy that I've written a book that has a title, or at least, you know, the the, the sort of redacted version of the title creates so many unintentionally great sentences. Um, It's very nice writing emails around it. Um, You know, I mean, we've talked a lot about (sighs) flailing and I think we've talked around not knowing. And this book ultimately feels like, I don't know if it's a celebration of that, but it's, it's definitely a an exploration of that. Um, and again, I mean, again, I suppose that the, the political part of this is that it really feels to me that that is becoming, that sort of allowing a space of not knowing and contradiction and nuance and um, hesitation and all of those things Um is just becoming an increasingly valuable c- commodity because it is becoming so rare. Um, and that, you know, social media, I, I, I object often to the way that people use the word social media. Or I think I when I say social media, I don't just mean Twitter and um, Instagram, I mean sort of it, all of our online and culture and sort of increasingly brief ways of interacting with each other are channeling us towards a place of expression that's dominated by certainty certainly but um outrage and sort of self-righteousness and And always, always, and this comes back to the Cambridge stuff, but always having an opinion, you know, that you're ready to whip out at any point and it sort of be perfectly formulated. Um, And... Which, obviously, is not to say that the people who I speak to in porn and oral history don't have opinions because some of them do but it's sort of looking at those opinions in the in the wider context of that person's experiences and feelings and thoughts about things around porn Um, and you know because for a lot of the people that I was speaking to it was really either their first time or one of their first times to have that conversation, certainly with um, someone who isn't like a a romantic partner, um, sort of seeing what it looks like to articulate those opinions for the first time and have to sort of be calibrating them on the spot and say this thing and then be like oh no but uh, I you know and, and, and maybe backtracking a bit or modifying and all of that um all of that which is so this is where I get on my soapbox but really I I do feel that it is a very crucial part not just of understanding something and and interacting with a topic but also interacting with each other relating to each other as people and and yeah having having kindness towards each other as people
1: yeah as you're talking I was just thinking about this idea of contradiction and hesitation and ambivalence I feel like I treasure ambivalence as a mode, mm. and it's, I think, the um, the the mode that I appreciate most in poetry, I feel like my favorite poets, all the poets that have defined my life, have ambivalence at their core, they question themselves, they query themselves. Think about poets like Elizabeth Bishop, who's always saying, was it like this? Or maybe it was like this, I don't you know. I don't know. And it's not a kind of shrugging ambivalence. It's a necessary searching. It's a learning activity. And another poet, Will Harris, I feel, is uh, such an incredible master of the ambivalent lyric Mm -hmm. who is able to sort of um, straddle both a thematic kind of query and a formal query. Mm -hmm. So the query is built into the structure of the poem or the writing for Will as it is in how he's actually writing you know I am questioning myself which is what I feel is in porn and thinking about the origin story for this oral history and oral histories are something I want to ask you about actually um it felt as though I mean there's so much I want to ask you about porn Thinking about the because it did almost feel as though the book was born out of um, a querying of your own preconceptions, maybe, and also uh, an acknowledgement that maybe that was something that you needed to test and and um, know more about culturally, sociologically. With, with people, with communities and in that way again it feels so brave because it begins with this kind of admission I suppose. Here are the things that I thought or have experienced with this massive topic, here's how I'm going to set myself the task to um, challenge myself and challenge the sort of dominant way of approaching this thing that I have in my head. And like fifty sounds, it is just so gripping. I mean, my God, it feels like I, I when I was reading it I wanted it to carry on. And I just kept having in my head how um much can can continue from this book and how much I did want to listen to it as a podcast actually as well. <laughs> I was like, this is how I wanna carry this on. And I have a few sort of like funny little questions. Well, oral histories, did you, did you think you would be sort of joining this mode, which feels so, um, just like, it's niche to me, to write, to be, to be engaging with the history of oral histories is, I mean, and it's also a pun, This is brilliant pun, but yeah, just how did you feel about, I mean, I, I feel like I've not really read that many oral histories and then you read something nice and you're like, oh, of course, but again, you've done that genius thing of so perfectly matching the form to the theme in a way that is so artful and conceptual?
0: I did not think I was going to be writing an oral history. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I did not think I was going to be writing a book about porn. And and actually, I I want to preface all of this because I feel like we've rubbed up against this. Oh, gosh. The, it's going to happen. The verbs are getting bad. Um in so many so many times and I've been about to say what I want to say now to sort of um forego all of this which is that um you have used the word two-pronged and I think I do think of what I do or I did think of what I did as two-pronged which is to say translation and then my own writing and and when I brought out 50 sounds it felt like that was relatively clear um but then porn I feel for me occupies more of an ambiguous place and there's part of me when when people use the word writing about it but you know what was it like to write I kind of I have an internal reaction to that um which is not obviously to to fault them i don't know what other verb would be more appropriate um but it feels like there were lots of different tasks involved in that project um and none of them really were writing apart from my own intro and and extra um and in in a lot of ways it sort of does feel um closer to translation certainly during the sort of the transcribing and the editing part Um, but yeah to return to the oral history question you know uh, once I finished 50 Sounds I really I really did feel like I had said all, (laughs) all I had to say or at least you know everything I sort of knew about in any way was already there in a book and there was going to be no more self-authored stuff um and then this porn idea sort of it really did feel like it just emerged demonically from my subconscious and was like right this is something that you feel badly about and s- quite strongly and murkily about this is what you need to do next you know and i, I think that is something that i i guess <sighs> i almost wish i hadn't learned but i did learn with 50 sounds that really for me the the the, the driver is some kind of emotional intensity like i can't I can't write without that. that's where it has to come from um but and and i I did have that with porn um and it was the pandemic and i you know it just felt like everything was sort of up for reevaluation and suddenly life and death seemed kind of closer, and it was like, well, why don't we actually talk about these things that we've never spoken about before um which is all of, all to say, when I first started having these conversations, I knew. I knew that the conversations had to be the starting point, for me, um, but I really didn't know what I was going to do with them, and I think because I'd written a book of essays, and it seemed to have gone relatively well, I assumed that that was what porn would be that I would have these conversations and then sort of write about them almost journalist style um and it was really as I was transcribing them that I started to realize for numerous reasons that these voices had to be in there um i mean the 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 the, the main reason being like because who who am i to take these experiences out of their lenses and put them through my own I, I i didn't feel comfortable doing that um but also just because well because of everything that we were saying you know the, the 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 conversations contained all of this rawness and hesitancy and contradiction and all of these things that that i thought really needed to be in there um so then i sort of realized Okay, I guess I'm gonna be writing an <laughs> oral history then. Um knowing really very little about the genre. Um and it was sort of a yeah, a a, a funny process of discovery. Um I I, I feel like I, I need to say incidentally that a lot of people seem to really object to me calling this an oral history. A lot of people on Goodreads, um, and and some reviewers as well, um, that it creates a very misleading impression, which I'm genuinely mystified by. I don't know if it's because people don't know what an oral history is, or if it's because it seems like it's gonna be the people involved in the industry and actually this is consumers. But anyway, that's 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 by the by. But I think I, I always that always comes to mind when I'm talking about writing an oral history because there's still some part of me that's like, wait, do I is it? But it is <laughs>
1: couldn't be more of an oral history. I know. Um but obviously the Goodreads people are Only ever to be trusted. (laughs) Um, That is interesting, though. But even thinking about the slippery tenants, then, or the slippery kind of uh, circumstances or markers, I suppose, of a genre, which I guess is always only ever imposed on books, usually, or in a more mainstream way for reasons of marketing... And actually, in this instance, it does feel far more playful. It does feel far more ludic and part of the art form itself that it's presenting its shape in such a kind of, um, yeah, playful mode. And I think it's, I mean, it must have been such an undertaking and... I wanted to ask you some questions I was just interested maybe salaciously in some of the relationships that you had with the people any awkward moments <laughs> or should I say any not awkward moments <laughs>
0: no <Nope. laughs> um it was awkward it was awkward I mean but that felt like It was almost joyfully awkward because we knew how awkward it was going to be. And so then when it wasn't awkward, it felt, felt nice. Um, that we were sort of choosing to move, step through the awkwardness, you know? Um, I don't think I can give you any salacious gossip on a podcast, sadly, um, Did it feel easier with some people? It definitely felt easier with some people and it sort of... I'm still not entirely clear what that algorithm is Um, because it definitely wasn't just... It's easier with people I don't know as well or it's easier with people I do know better... Um, or it's easier with men, or you know, it, it, it wasn't anything as as simple as that. Um, were they in person? Some of them were. So the the funny thing was that this was still really in the in the height of lockdown days. Um, so a lot of them were done in parks, um, and we would sit. And there would inevitably be this moment when we'd be sort of usually when we were talking about the most kind of involved X-rated stuff. And then this dog would come hurtling up and then like two minutes, two seconds later, its owner would follow. And then, you know, we'd just been talking about whatever it was. And then suddenly it was like, oh, no, don't worry. Um, yeah, so that was that was really entertaining to revisit in the recordings because that would all all be there on the on the audio um and then a few were on zoom i mean i had hoped to do them all in person um but not everyone was in the country
1: to do this kind of project during covid it just there's something it's just all touch sense feeling and <laughs> Well, actually, touch, intimacy, um, I think about the section in 50 Sounds where somebody puts their hands on your shoulders, and um, it's not erotic, or maybe it is erotic, and that's okay and fine, but it's more intimate in a way of uh, bridging a kind of loneliness that maybe you didn't realise you were experiencing at that time. To that extent until you had been touched by somebody. After not having that touch for months. And when we talk about porn we are talking about intimacies. And how intimacies shift what our desires are doing to us. How we enact our desires and as I was reading the book I felt myself still I I felt sort of annoyed at myself that I was still shy about thinking about talking about our porn habits with each other and it's such a glorious admission to be able to have these conversations with people for a start and I love when you're talking about sending that email after you've had a glass of wine just being like okay I've got this idea (laughs) and I suppose the reception of the people that you were interviewing and their shifting kind of approaches to this and I suppose I'm interested in maybe what surprised you because i feel like by the final essay there is a kind of um a sort of acknowledgement or a piece that has been made with the presence and i suppose like the necessity of porn in culture and it's actually more about everything else that is bad and wrong with the world that sort of of course means that something like porn would um end up being a site that uh where we're able to see really visibly exploitation and degradation when actually there is incredible porn um amazing ethical feminist erotic brilliant porn um and yeah, I think i wanna go i wanna talk about like men and patriarchy in a minute because I feel like there are threads of um, also managing a, a female body a female presenting body in a patriarchal space and, and patriarchal countries um but for now I suppose what surprised you what surprised you in your own reactions And what surprised you maybe about what other people were telling you?
0: I'm absolutely fizzing with things to say. Sorry, I don't know where to begin. Um, I'm going to start by talking about something that someone said to me about what surprised them about the book. Um, Which is, this was a reader and they told me, they wrote to me and said, it's somehow much less explicit than I was expecting it to be um and then I think they asked if like if we'd cut the racy bits and I was really surprised by that question and then I thought about it and I realized that probably there actually aren't that many bits where the conversation is really like right what are you putting in the search bar you know um Or what really and truly gets you off. And I think there were a couple of moments when that comes up. And it is amazing how shocking and, like, extraordinarily intimate that feels. Um. somehow way way more than talking about sex lives and things Um, and I don't think that's because of the sort of taboo that exists around masturbation I think that is something more to do with with desire and with the the privacy, the the way that we guard that you know, that in some sense that is a kind of the innermost sanctum that I feel like even in long term very good, intimate relationships it can be hard to talk about that or to to keep having that conversation maybe you will have it once but like obviously those things are continually changing and they represent i don't know if they represent the truth about us but they represent one thing about us that feels quite fundamental um so that that was a sort of surprising and interesting thing to think about um i suppose one thing that was surprising but really shouldn't have been surprising at all was the way that it really is impossible to talk about porn without talking about so many other different things the way it again i'm gonna say rubs it rubs up against like just just sort of everything really in our lives and, and, and that makes so much sense, sorry. Um, I think when I went into this project, I really didn't know whether other people even really thought very much about porn. You know, I mean, I assumed that they used it a lot, but I didn't know if they were really even bothered about the kind of... I want to say ethical, but I, I think, I mean ethical in a very broad sense, e- e- or like, ethical, philosophical questions about it. Um, and I was quite surprised and definitely reassured to see the extent to which people thought about it a lot. Um, and, and you really, f- I really felt in those conversations a sense of like real release from some people just because there's this thing you could really get the, the, the sense that this is something that's been going round and round and round and round people's head with no outlet.
1: It's because uh, we've talked about ambivalence mm-hmm. and I was thinking about what, if you had anything you wanted to d- do with this book or what you wanted this book to do and I actually love the note in the second essay which is to write the kind of book that would inform and prepare someone to talk to other people about porn Mm. but that the book object would be a sort of conversational bridge again just feels like the most um or perhaps what the book object should be, that there shouldn't be a kind of dogma or um, direction, but a presentation of accumulative and commingling and contradictory and hesitatory commentary on something. Um, and in that way, I guess I still am interested in your pool of people. Mm-hmm. And... When you came to putting the book together and also asking people, were you nervous about the parameters, I suppose, that come when writing a book like this? Like, I have my network, which is this, and I have this book length, which is this. And of course, with any book, it's like an ever unfolding set of what ifs and avenues this one feels particularly like that and maybe sort of I guess I was thinking about what this book would look like in two years in five years as an aside I think you may be responsible for a publishing trend (laughs) that is hitting um (laughs) because I just I think yeah I, I I was thinking about the amount of conversations that happen in the book about that aren't about porn they're about they're about sex and sexual cultures and um how we date and um you know we live in cities I have a rural background and I was thinking about well just the endless possibilities I suppose of this kind of book and I think you do say in the introduction you want to find a way to carry it on or you were thinking of a way to carry it on and would you and how would you, if if that's something? Or is there was there something you wanted to include, couldn't access it, couldn't get to it? And I think this also links to a feeling I had about the anonymization mm. of the contributors, which I, I wondered if you sort of lingered over that. So this, I suppose, again, is a question about shape mm. and
0: um, containment. This is all stuff that I've thought about so much. I mean, particularly because I've been on a rather long porn tour. (laughs) Um, And and these are kind of questions that I have been thinking about sort of in, in engaging with members of the audience as well. Um... Okay, I, I guess there's there's two there's two sort of interlinked questions there, like how did I shape the book object as it exists? And then is there room, is there an opportunity for carrying this on? Is and, and what sort of shape could and would that take? Um the shaping of the original book was you know i i i sent out this email call out to a bunch of people um and and deciding those parameters was hard um you know that there are all of these questions like do i know this person well enough do i know them too well is it okay to approach people who I am sort of connected to in a professional sphere, all of this kind of stuff. Um, and then once those conversations got going, there was also this sense of like, okay, but like meeting other people and, and introducing more impromptu conversations and slightly shaping the balance Um as it went on, there was some of that, but I think that I don't know if it's, if it's just coincidence or, or, or what it was, but it, it did feel like the balance of interviews that I got was working you know i there wasn't that much curation that needed to be done and i don't know if in part that was because i was kind of subconsciously shaping as i was going along and thinking like okay this person says they're up for it but actually probably their experience will is likely to be more similar to this person i've already spoke to so i'll prioritize someone else and then and then i got to a point where i realize like oh I've got a lot of material here um and I think you know one of the sort of this is maybe a good bridge to the other question and this is something that I've talked about a lot um but I think The other thing that made me feel like, okay, this is time to bring this to a close now was that I had observed this change in myself. And it wasn't like a total switch of opinions, but it was certainly being able to say the word porn without blushing and say the word masturbation without blushing and feeling relatively okay with talking about it maybe not with sort of you know going into the real real nitty-gritty that we talked about earlier because I think that's always difficult but I guess I just recognized that my journey was coming to an end in that sense um and that felt it felt important to close the book there because i think to the extent that the conversations do feel raw that rawness came it was a reciprocal thing you know and i felt like if i carried on doing this indefinitely it was likely to m- move closer to the sort of interviewer interviewee format which was not what i wanted um so in that sense i feel like i can't just go on and do porn 2 in the same using the same template um because the me part has changed and also you know the fact that this now exists as a book and and people will have read it i think also changes the context I do still have the desire to carry it on in some way because I feel like it is endlessly fascinating and people's experiences in this arena are endlessly fascinating. Um, and there are things that I now look back and wish that I'd discussed Um, wish that we discussed like I wouldn't say glaring emissions but like you know there's this whole whole issue of how porn interacts with class that I think is you know briefly alluded to in the book but not really very comprehensively and you know even even when we're using words like sort of tacky and talking about like low brow versus high brow aesthetics and stuff um classy for example i mean i i feel like beneath that is this whole unsaid about how sort of class snobbery is interacting with i mean with the whole field of any kind of sex work right but um I think it's it's really really interesting in relationship to porn so I would like to talk to people about that more um I've also become really interested in the notion of play um and how that relates to this sort of you know the Audre lord dichotomy of pornography versus the pornographic versus the erotic um if if you know part of the difference is is in this sort of sense of genuine play and you were mentioning sort of really really brilliant great porn um and I feel like that I haven't seen all of that much of that. And I think that what I often feel to be missing is precisely that sense of play. You know, that's a a, a different thing from the sort of the, the violence and degradation and all of that stuff that you were mentioning. But I feel like they are very much linked through... Um, that's sorry that's a lot of a lot of things
1: peeping behind the, <laughs> looking behind the curtain I mean it, because it is just such a fascinating um project and the book is such a incredible final object <clears throat> and when I think of I mean it's a very very this is a tangent um but when I think about sort of um sex and class and sexual cultures, and um, the relationship to class. One of my favorite topics of conversation to have with anybody when I've had a glass of wine is like how brilliant carry on films are, and how like legitimately like bawdy and artful they are as like vessels of like, I mean, incredible like working class actors and actresses. Um, but also just like the shape of a narrative, a bawdy narrative like that, um, which is so uh, playful and um, punning and popular. And I think that is a conversation that I would love to think more about. However, I think with a book like this, you know, feeling like you, you didn't you said, I'm not gonna say glaring emissions in but in not saying it, you said it. And I think a book like this would make you feel pressured to think that way because nothing else like this really exists. So you feel responsible. It's like, oh okay, I have to think about all of these things where maybe in like a decade there will be less pressure, I suppose, to speak to everybody's experience. And all of the underpinnings and all of the consequences and the various different experiences by different communities, you know, and their responses to porn.
0: That's a really interesting point. Like, you know, I I feel like in the in the intro, I sort of deliberately reject any kind of completionism that could (laughs) hang around this project you know and that they, they say sort of there's only 19 people they can't they can't be a representative sample and yet <laughs> and yet even having rejected it it's st- that ghost still does hang over you right when it when there when there is just a lack of discussion about it
1: so reading 50 sounds and reading porn alongside each other at the same time has been really interesting. I feel very lucky that I've been able to do that. And 50 Sounds was published in 2021 and Porn was published this year, 2023. And it did feel like there were a number of uh, anecdotal portals um, in 50 Sounds towards porn and towards the kinds of questions and queries that you were looking to expand on in porn and I think of a couple of moments in 50 sounds where these portals open up and the first is the realization of the uh habits of the person that you're dating at the time who is uh talked about as why and the kind of porn that he watches all the pornographic way in which he speaks to you and perhaps the more major portal is when you are in Tokyo and you're looking for an internet cafe and you find one but then you realize that it is an internet cafe that is used primarily by people to watch porn and maybe masturbate within the space. And a man sits behind you. And mentions that he has a preference for porn with foreigners in it. Mm. And there's this sense of. Unease. And discomfort. That you do mention. Doesn't feel sinister as you're leaving the place. But it's something that you're kind of grappling with. Which again leads me to the. It's, it's almost like the beginning of the questions that you're thinking about in porn but I wondered about the relationship between the two books in this way and whether this was something you were thinking about maybe without thinking about it in 50 sounds and you talk again and we'll sort of loop back I suppose to the what it means to exist in and learn in and be a woman in patriarchal societies managing language managing sexuality and it's probably easier for me because I've got them side by side and I read them side by side but I wondered if the networks in both books overlap for you
0: yeah that's a great question I am um, I love what you said about thinking about it without knowing that you were thinking about it. And I think that was exactly what was happening in 50 Sounds. And then I think I sort of... You know, when I started working on porn, I really, really felt like it was unrelated to anything I had done or thought or, you know, put out into the world before. Um... It felt like a radical sort of <laughs> departure from my brand image, I guess. Um, and it was only as I was working on it that I started to see that I'd done all the groundwork sort of thinking-wise in in 50 Sounds and that there's just, you know, thematically, there's so much of a piece Um a friend of mine <laughs> said to me when I told them that I was working on the porn book. Um, a couple of months later, they were like, "When you first said about porn, I didn't, I didn't get it, and I didn't see how how like that would fit in." But then it was like, "Of course, it's all about shame." <laughs> I was like, "Oh god, <laughs> here we are." I mean, and I think that's a big one Uh, you know one of the one of the interesting things actually with with porn one of the things I've loved about people's reactions to it is like a lot of people have said to me well it says it's about porn but it's actually about blah and I've had like 10 different variations on what the blah is and some are like more you know some is like it's actually about masturbation it's like yeah okay um but there's been sex obviously there's been shame there's been intimacy relating um I think there might have been language and then it starts to be like yeah okay well these are just my my themes I suppose
1: I wanted to ask about porn tour which is what you called what you've been on and I was remembering Max Porter once told me that writing grief is the thing with feathers meant that at the Q&A or at the signing you get a lot of grief stories mm. and um, which is heavy I wondered if you had a lot of people and I, I, I went to another talk recently where someone is writing a kind of uh, like narrative th- a critical text on narrative theories of like abortion, series of abortion narratives, basically, and she says she gets a lot of abortion stories. Are you getting people coming up and being like, "These are what this is the thing that I do, porn
0: wise." You know what I am, but weirdly not at the book <laughs> book events, just at parties and stuff. <laughs> um, I think people are more embarrassed to talk about porn stories in a long line of people waiting to have their books signed, or a short line or no line at all but you know the, I think the book event is not the ideal venue for that but people definitely are opening up to me um sometimes in writing and sometimes yeah in in person. Um, which is wild to me that I've become that person, given how I was two years ago or whatever. Um, but it is it is a really fascinating phenomenon that, you know, I, I, I guess that with the porn, it's sort of relatively predictable, but I think it surprised me that it happened with 50 Sounds as well. Um, and the, a lot of people got in touch with me and, and talked about their experiences of, I mean, most often, actually, of moving between countries and adjusting to life in another language and sort of that process of adjusting, but never actually feeling fully adjusted. Um, just incredibly moving things that people tell you about their lives you know um and i feel often really privileged to hear them i mean i i feel privileged even when they're born stories um but sometimes it's it's quite hard to to respond you know and i i think in a way you are just the receiver in that in that situation and that's kind of all you can do um certainly with the 50 sound stuff you know it was like i i've sort of I, I, on that score i've really <laughs> i've really given everything that there is o- onto the page and there's not much more more that i can give i suppose
1: and it's it can be tiring as well that kind of um, a space you've made or you feel like you've made that other people want to join yeah
0: it's a more it's a more therapist Mm -hmm. role that you're inhabiting in that moment right Um, and I'm not at all averse to the sort of thinking about writing and therapy and 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 the overlaps i read a goodreads review of someone else's book recently um and someone was leaving what they thought was a, a very scathing comment about how this is an, another example of a young woman who thinks that writing is therapy um And I don't want to read these kinds of books. And I internally, before I could even really think what was going on, I I was thinking, those are exactly the kinds of books I want to read. A. And B, I definitely use writing as therapy and I don't really think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, sure, you don't just sort of let it all loose and then publish that verbatim but I think you know I I would almost there needs to be some control happening there obviously Um, but I would almost go the opposite way and say like I feel like if there's not some analogy between the writing process and some kind of therapeutic process that that's you know the necessary stuff isn't really happening for a certain kind of writing,
1: mm. I guess. Let's talk about translation. Yes. The other space that you make and hold and give. And um, yeah, I've, 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 I've been reading your translations over the years. And most recently, I've been reading Mild Vertigo by Mieko Kanai. Mm-hmm. And as somebody who is not a translator and who is monolingual, Loves translated fiction. Loves translated poetry. I'm interested in lots of different aspects of this. The sort of intellectual approach. The immersive approach. Um, My most immediate interest, I suppose, is practical. The kind of work that you look for and you find. um, How you think about putting it into the world. Um, And I wondered if I could just maybe ask you about your translation process however you'd like to talk about that
0: yeah i guess one thing to say is that i've worked on a number of different books by this stage and none of them have come about in the same way you know i i think something that you're told as a translator particularly of what gets called a minority language i.e. not the sort of big five european languages is that you also have to work as an agent essentially so find the books check the rights are available put together a pitch pack and then pitch it to people um And I've only ever had that work once. Um, And that was for a book I did called There's No Such Thing as an Easy Job. Um, But the other projects have been either the sort of the other end of the scale, i.e. the editor somehow gets to know about a book and then approaches me and has already bought the rights and and just says do you want to do this book and i say yes or no or what happens in the majority of cases is, is that it's some something in between those two um but i will be sort of working together with the editor um or it's, you know, an author is suggested to me and I find a particular work or, you know, they've seen a an, an, uh, story that I've translated online and want to publish the, you know, the, the novel. It's a real, it's a real mix. Um, so with the Miyako Kanai, it was actually um, Tainan Kogane from New Directions who got in touch and asked if I liked Mia kanai and I did. Um, and then he mentioned this particular book, which I hadn't actually read, and he knew of it from a Paris Review article that had been written about it, even though it hadn't been translated. Um, and I read it and just... Oh, my God. I mean, I had really read nothing like it. Um... and was yeah very 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 infused by the idea of translating it until it actually <laughs> happened and i was sitting at my desk and you know i i think that's the the first few books i translated i felt very um very worried as to whether i could actually do it and do it justice and then I think I, I reached a place of slightly greater confidence. Um, and Mild Vertigo set me right back to really genuinely doubting if, it, if, if I could do it, if it was possible <laughs> to translate this book. Um, and I think that was really good. You know, I think I think that was really good for me to go back to a blaze of total humility and, and, and you know, and I think engaging with the sort of the real difficulty of translation um, of sort of really creating a voice. I was gonna say from scratch. Of course, it's not from scratch, but creating it from scratch in English, um, you know, with 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 the mal vertigo, because it's such a unique style. Um, it really did feel like I was creating this this new voice. That that was what had to happen, and that the the creation of that was really tough. Um, but I think, you know, again, to return to the two pronged thing, there was a time when I was translating mild vertigo and transcribing the porn interviews and working on my own writing And they all felt so interconnected, you know. I think there was something about the... So for anyone who hasn't read it, Mild Vertigo is is written in a very vernacular stream of conscious... um, Very vernacular but also extremely kind of intellectual in parts stream of consciousness or someone I i'm in touch with said described it as more of a torrent torrent of consciousness which i really like it's it's, you know very very um very unforgiving i would say and and four or five page length sentences um and kind of real world events blending seamlessly with internal events um, anyway, the, the the vernacularity of it um, felt like the crossover point with with everything else I was doing. You know, it was one of those sort of amazing moments when you're, you're doing a lot of different, tasks and reading a lot of different things and they all seem to form this map where everything feels sort of networked yeah yeah that was a a magical thing and so I think I'm, I'm increasingly drawn to this idea of translating In a way that, I guess, as I progress in my translation career, um, and as my sort of sense of what that practice and process looks like for me deepens, I'm I'm feeling more confident to actually allow those translation projects to sort of intermingle more creatively with the other parts of my practice whereas I think probably in the first few years I might have thought this is unethical and I'm stealing and um, or you know this will mean I'm not I'm not fully engaged with it and I think I'm starting to feel that actually that's that's for me the 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 best way to translate when it feels like I'm engaging with this text through my own life as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's such a beautiful way of thinking about how you move through a life translating. And maybe we could finish with a return to the beginning because, well, two things. Mm. You said that you were writing fiction and then that didn't work and you junked all that fiction. Mm. And you also said you've just started writing
0: again. Mm -hmm. And I guess I want to ask, what next? (laughs) What is next? I mean, currently I have a lot of translation projects um lined up which is a very nice thing um i am writing something but i don't yet know really what it is and even if it's possible if that makes sense um it feels like a very exciting place to be i think you know when you when your kind of sense of it as a project is is constantly shifting. Um and it's sort of jumping jumping from the possible into into the impossible and then back again. Um that feels nice. I think I've I've just got to sort of sit with it, ride it out and 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 wait and see what comes. You've
1: done it before. <laughs> um it's been so brilliant to chat through all this work with you Polly Thank you so much for taking this time and um, being so fantastic and open with me.
0: Thank you so much. It's been so incredibly eye-opening and inspiring and I feel yeah like I'm going to be thinking about all of the things that you have said for weeks to come. So thank you so much.